This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight's show comes to us courtesy of Radio EcoShock. Alex Smith is the host as he guides us through a talk by Professor Kevin Anderson. Now, for a long time, I've wanted to bring you Kevin Anderson, but he won't fly to Australia. I was impressed that he is so strict with his carbon footprint that when he was invited to a conference in China, he went there by train from London. He's a leading scientist who is constantly urging us out of the complacency, which is leading us on a path to six degrees or more of warming. Over to Alex Smith in Vancouver and Professor Kevin Anderson in Bristol. In a devastating speech at Bristol University, Tuesday, November 6th, Dr. Kevin Anderson accused too many climate scientists of keeping quiet about the unrealistic assessments put out by governments and about our awful odds of reaching global warming far above the proposed two-degree safe point. In fact, says Anderson, we're almost guaranteed to reach four degrees of warming as early as 2050, just 40 years away, and may soar beyond that, beyond the point which agriculture, the ecosystem, and industrial civilization, they won't be able to survive. All this comes from one of the world's top climate scientists plugged into the latest research and numbers. Dr. Kevin Anderson is from the UK's premier climate modeling institution, the Tyndall Centre, and he teaches at the University of Manchester. He delivered the speech, Real Clothes for the Emperor, Facing the Challenges of Climate Change, at the Cabot Institute at the University of Bristol in Britain. In this program, I'm going to play selections from Kevin Anderson's latest speech, accompanied by some explanation and references to other sources. Anderson speaks very quickly, assuming a highly informed European audience, and includes some technical data and reports unknown to most of us. So we're going to work through this together. Here's how he begins. Why I think the emperor is streaking in front of us naked while well, most of us are sort of saying, aren't they beautifully attired, including many scientists. I think actually if you stand up and say the, the, the climate change emperor is naked, most people will shut you down. They do not want to hear that, however obvious it may be. So I think as, a, as an analogy, it really works quite well. So it's real close to the emperor, trying to think what do we need to do to ensure that the emperor can stay warm, or cool perhaps in the climate change world. So discussing this in relation to climate change. I want to set a context up to start off with for this. Right, so this is from that well-known left-wing think tank, the International Energy Agency. This is from their chief economist. This is the conventional wisdom here. We're on track for a 3.5 degree C temperature rise by 2040. 
and they're looking at that compared with today, so compared with pre-industrial times, that's a four degree C or so rise by around the middle of the century. That's what we're on track for at the moment, according to the IEA. When Fatih Birol looks at this data, the trend is perfectly in line with a temperature increase of six degrees Celsius by the end of the century, that is, which would be devastating, have devastating consequences for the planet. So the IEA are saying we're heading towards a six degree C future, six degree C global mean surface temperature rise. Today, I think it was today or yesterday, PwC, PricewaterhouseCooper, put out a report where they're saying also that we're online for 6 degrees C. I mean, I have to say, I think it's been pretty obvious the last 10 years, that's where we're pointing towards. But it is interesting to see orthodox organisations coming out and saying this now. Bill went on to say we have five years to change the energy system, or have it changed. So it needs to be changed by the climate and by the environment around us, or we can actually start to change it. Now, note it says energy system, it's not just about supply. So real credit here to the IEA for thinking about this quite differently, prepared to stand up and say things that many of us would not agree with. The Copenhagen Accord, hopefully most of you are familiar with this, is what we signed up to, including most nations around the world have signed up to this, and in fact it was broadly followed by the Cancun Agreement. Now, it's not, they're not legally binding, but like all international agreements, they're never really legally binding. But this is interesting, because I think it actually says something quite important about um, how we see climate change. To hold the increase in global temperature below 2 degrees Celsius, notice below, not a 50-50 chance of, below 2 degrees Celsius and take action to meet this objective consistent with the science, consistent with the science, that's quite radical, and on the basis of equity, even more radical. And most nations have signed up to this, so I think we should always hold our leaders to account. Yeah, hold that in front of them and point out what it says. Science, equity, and that we stay below 2 degrees C, not a 50-50 chance of it. Kevin Anderson has brought up a new study from the most unexpected source, the report by PricewaterhouseCoopers, the generally conservative giant accounting company, is titled Too Late for Two Degrees? Joe Rome at thinkprogress.org has an excellent summary posted November 6th titled Study, We're Headed to 11 Degrees Fahrenheit Warming and Even 7 Degrees Fahrenheit Requires, quote, Nearly Quadrupling the Current Rate of Decarbonization, end quote. The main conclusion in the PricewaterhouseCoopers study reads, quote, Our low carbon economy index evaluates the rate of decarbonization of the global economy that is needed to limit warming to 2 degrees centigrade. This report shows that global carbon intensity decreased between 2000 and 2011 by about 0.8% a year. In 2011, carbon intensity decreased by 0.7%. The global economy now needs to cut carbon intensity by 5.1% every year from now to 2050. Keeping to the 2-degree carbon budget will require sustained and unprecedented reductions over four decades. Government's ambitions to limit warming to 2 degrees centigrade appear highly unrealistic. And that's the end of that quote from the big accounting company. And then they say, quote, we have passed a critical threshold. Not once since 1950 has the world achieved that rate of decarbonization in a single year, but the task now confronting us is to achieve it for 39 consecutive years. Even to have a reasonable prospect of getting to the 4 degrees scenario would imply nearly quadrupling the current rate of decarbonization, end quote. Joe Rome reminds us our speaker Kevin Anderson has already written about the 7-degree Fahrenheit increase in global mean temperature. It is, quote, incompatible with organized global community, is likely to be beyond adaptation, is devastating to the majority of ecosystems, and has a high probability of not being stable. That is, 4 degrees centigrade or 7 degrees Fahrenheit would be an interim temperature on the way to a much higher equilibrium level. That's what Kevin Anderson wrote. 
and I'd like to just keep reading out Joe Rome's excellent if horrifying article, but I'll leave that up to you except for this from Joe. Quote, Such a world would mean permanent dust bowl conditions over the U.S. Southwest, parts of the Great Plains, and many other regions around the globe that are heavily populated and or heavily farmed. Sea level rise of some one foot by 2050 and then four to six feet or more by 2100, rising some six to 12 inches or more each decade hereafter. Massive species loss on land and sea, perhaps 50% or more of all biodiversity. Much more extreme weather. These will all be happening simultaneously and getting worse decade after decade. A 2009 NOAA-led study found the worst impacts would be, quote, largely irreversible for 1,000 years, end quote, from NOAA. In such a world, there would be little prospect for feeding 9 billion people post-2050, given current dietary, economic, and agricultural practices. The word adaptation simply doesn't apply in any meaningful sense. And that's Joe Rome, and he's writing about what happens if we go above 4 degrees centigrade or 7 degrees Fahrenheit of warming. And I put a link to that hair-raising piece by Joe at thinkprogress.org in my own show blog at ecoshock.info. And remember, you can download the entire one-hour speech by Kevin Anderson at the University of Bristol from that blog as well. Please do. Meanwhile, we'll continue with selections from Anderson's speech to the Cabot Institute on November 6th. Now, I know I shouldn't be surprised the climate is spinning out of control. After all, the Swiss reinsurance company Munich Re warned the two-degree alleged safety limit was, quote, no longer attainable, end quote. But that was published in a periodical called Insurance Daily. Perhaps like me, you missed that. A continuing message from Kevin Anderson is we've all been led astray by a general fog coming out of a combination of convenient climate science, reports from governments, the United Nations, and those conferences that continued with big language and no results, as emissions continue to rise. No wonder the public doesn't know. As Kevin Anderson will tell us, those who do know are conspiring to keep us from the awful truth. Here is what is actually happening with our greenhouse gas emissions. Now, it's worth noting in the economic downturn, in 2009 to 10, global emissions went up by 5.9%. That was at the start of the economic downturn, 5.9%. I think that's higher than at any point, point during the Industrial Revolution. And even the following two years, 2010 to 11, went up by about 3.2%. And this year, probably a little bit below 3%, maybe 26 We haven't got the final data on that yet. But despite the economic downturn, we're still seeing emissions rise, keep going up and up. So what are the future for emissions? Well, let's just think about the energy system. Most of my work and most of what I'm going to talk about today relates to energy. If we build a power station, if we build oil rigs, gas platforms, which I used to work on, they generally last for 25 to 50 years if they're reasonably well built. If we build infrastructures, this building itself, grid networks, pipe works, sewage systems, those sorts of things, road networks, train networks, they're going to last for 30 to 100 years. So once you put them in place, that's typically how long you expect to see them live. If you build an aircraft and sell it or a, or a ship, you normally expect to see that living for about, operating for about 30 years. So these things really lock you in to the future of the next numerous decades. So if we think about those supply network, and remember, most of the world now is fitting that like there's no tomorrow, and we're not changing ours, we're living with what we've got and just modifying it a little bit, but the rest of the world is trying to build this as fast as possible. China at the moment is building about 150 international airports, which we can't blame the Chinese, because we'll be flying in and out of them, no doubt. So 150 international airports. If they flew as much as we did, they'd require 450. Now, most of that for academics, I think. Anderson goes on to list a host of climate and economic reports coming from governments, big institutes and universities, 
that use obviously false low-ball numbers for greenhouse gas emissions. The famous British Stern report in 2006, for example, used an emissions level growth of 0.95% per year. The actual rates for that period from 2000 to 2005 were more than three times higher than that. Stern had access to the latest figures. Anyone could find them on the web. Why didn't he use the actual facts? Using lower numbers helped a number of agencies and governments achieve much more palatable predictions, leaving lots of time for us and Western societies to make small, tiny changes while adapting. Quite the opposite was true based on the real numbers. Counting the growth of emissions from China and the developing world, the developed West and Japan were and actually are entirely out of time to slowly reduce emissions. As Anderson calculates, to preserve a relatively safe climate below 2 degrees, the emissions of the developed countries had to drop to zero by 2010. I won't list out all the official reports from Britain, Europe, America, that use that phony low emissions figures plus wild overestimates of all kinds to get results that please the sitting politicians and big business board members. Kevin Anderson gives you all the details in his speech. Just as the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche supposed it takes some ideas a long time to penetrate society, he compared it to the time light takes to arrive from distant stars, our public dialogue is missing this critical fact that Anderson reveals again and again. We are heading towards a catastrophe. No kidding around about that. That's what's coming. That cities and agriculture and civilization cannot survive. Then Anderson reveals a startling twist on what we need to do now. He says we don't have time to implement large-scale alternatives. We need not focus so much on the supply side, like the tar sands, the Arctic oil, the frack gas, alternative energy, or nuclear power. Those technologies all take more time to implement than we have to save the climate. Anderson concluded in a science paper published by the British Royal Society that only a planned economic downturn, accompanied by a severe energy austerity by the 1%, who use the 50% of the world's energy, and that's us, can avoid this climate disaster. We needed to start action yesterday. We must campaign on the demand side. We still have time to each and every one of us drastically slash our energy use. It's a decision we can make. That's somewhere in the region of four, degree, four to six degree temperature rise by the end of the century. But we have to bear in mind that when we start talking about these higher temperatures, the science is very uncertain because there's, there's a lot of other feedback issues there, a lot of non-linearities that are very complicated to understand. Probably you can't fully understand them at any point. But it looks that in the orthodox way I think of these issues, this is a very, very high temperature future. That's where we're heading to at the moment. Just out of interest, that's the two degree C we've signed up to. So that's what we have to do for two degrees C, and that's the gap between, the void between, the rhetoric. Here we are, rhetoric. There's some reality. Oh, I just, there's another couple of bits I put on that. Just as interesting that you can't, this is the supply bit, you can probably do something about supply, about energy supply within, say, 2025, 20, 2030, 2040. You probably can't do anything about it this afternoon or in the next five or ten years. Not significant. But you can do a lot about the demand side. So the argument we, we, we make repeatedly is that actually it's demand that really matters. And actually it's demand that brings the issue down to the local level. It's what we do that demands the energy. The supply side typically is a much more centralised issue and probably can't get away from that completely, whatever we do. And most demand technologies actually can change in one to ten years. Um, most cars actually, the, most car journeys are, are travelled by cars that are under eight years old, 90% pretty much of all vehicle kilometres. And behaviours, of course, can change instantly. We can change our behaviour now if we wanted to. We can switch all this off and go home if we wanted to do that. And there are lots of things we can do behaviourally. This, this is one quick one if you want to provide light. These light bulbs are a very good example of that. 
want to provide light to the electricity, a transmission network, a power station, and some Venezuelans to dig the coal out of the ground for you. So you put the light in here, 10, 10 unit, useful units of light using your lumens. Your, power, your light bulb here is 80% um, heat, 20% light, probably slightly better for halogen, but not much better. You'll lose 6 to 10%, probably 6 to 8% in your transmission and distribution network. Most of it in the low voltage distribution system. Your power station will be at 35 to 45% efficient, and you'll lose 10% of your energy at least getting the stuff out the ground, onto a train, onto a chip, or over here, another train into the power station. So this actually says this is very much about a, an issue for us. We can do a huge amount here and have massive repercussions across the system. As Anderson tells us, just to burn a 100-watt bulb demands several times that amount of energy down the power chain to mine the resource, transport it, burn it with only partial efficiency, and then lose another 50% or so in transmission. So turning off the bulb grows an impact all the way up the power chain if we can all cut back deeply and quickly. The result of that energy austerity, of course, when we stop buying useless consumer junk with all that embedded energy, is an economic crash. Is that better than a climate that wipes out at least half of all living species, possibly including ourselves? You be the judge. And then the, this is from the Adam and Hume report, uh, European report 2010. A low stabilization target of 400 ppmv CO2e, in other words, lower than we have today, can be achieved at moderate cost and a high likelihood of achieving this goal if you own a TARDIS. But, um, so yeah, these are important government reports. And people are saying these sort of things. But they still look naked to me. I can't see any pants on the, on the streaking emperor. So the alternative take that my colleague Alice Bowes and I have, have, have put out in, the, uh, in a paper in 2008, I should say there, and indeed is in keeping with the, uh, with the IEA views today and, in, and the PWC views on this, it's difficult to envisage anything other than a planned economic recession. We were told that's too negative a term. We should have used the word contraction. I think most people know what we mean, and being compatible with stabilization at or below 650 parts per million CO2e, which is about 4 degrees C, there or thereabouts. So that's what we wrote in 2008, and then we revamped the analysis in 2011 for um, looking at the poorer parts of the world and the wealthy parts, and if you're going to peak emissions in glo globally by 2015 to 2016, which is where most analysis peaks emissions, this would require a prolonged period of austerity for Annex 1 nations, for the wealthy parts of the world. And that's not pulled out anywhere. Everyone always talks about win-win opportunities, green growth opportunities, all these wonderful expressions that are completely meaningless when you think about the curves I showed you at the beginning. It would also be quite a change in the development patterns for the poorer part, the non-Annex 1 parts of the world. We must keep in mind that the target of keeping under 2 degrees centigrade of warming was always an arbitrary political decision. It doesn't necessarily guarantee a safe climate, as we are already finding out these days. The droughts, super floods, super storms like Sandy, and drastic meltback of Arctic sea ice all come when we are only officially approaching 1 degree of warming over pre-industrial times. 2 degrees gives us double that at the very least. Remember, 2 degrees sees this threshold between acceptable and dangerous. That's not a scientific decision. It's a, it's a political, civil society, international fudge, like all of these things always are, of course. People coming together, it's informed by science, but it's not a scientific decision that 2 degrees C is the appropriate or not the appropriate threshold. We have come collectively together, whether we like it or not, and come up with that as the appropriate threshold, 2 degrees C. And above that, we say it's dangerous. So if you think of the busiest road in, in Bristol, and what we're, at the moment we're going for 50-50, which is what most legislation is built on at best, that's every, time, so every second time you cross the road, you close your eyes. That's what we're aiming for. I mean, it'd be quite good for the emissions because it'd bring the curve down quite quickly. Here is more from Dr. Kevin Anderson, Deputy Director of Britain's prestigious Tyndall Centre for Climate Research. Despite this, the Committee on Climate Change, they're most optimistic. The UK government has a Committee on Climate Change, for those who aren't aware of this. It's the, 
it's said to be an independent committee. It's not really an independent committee, to be honest, but it, it, it is an important committee, and all credit to the UK government for establishing this, and all credit for the, to the CCC. They do some very, very good work. I still think they, they very much sweeten the pill, and far too sweet, in my view. The Committee on Climate Change, their best budget is for 56% chance of exceeding 2 degrees C. So that's their best one. And the UK government adopted their not-quite-so-optimistic one of a 63% chance of exceeding 2 degrees C. So we're all signed up to hold to 2 degrees C, but our policies have been put in place for a really high chance of exceeding that target. And actually, for our national policies, we're being very, very unfair to the poor parts of the world in terms of issues like deforestation and so forth. That should be much... We should have a much, much tighter constraint on that for the UK. If you want to ask me about that later, you can do. But we're being very unfair in some other parts of the world in making that decision. The argument we make is, can that 60-odd percent chance of exceeding 2 degrees C, can that be reconciled with hold the temperature to below 2 degrees C, take action on the basis of science? Of course it can't. And yet scientists say nothing about it. Our job as scientists is to stand up and say, hang on, that doesn't really fit. The scientists repeatedly stay quiet. Like old Thomas More's maxim. Now, silence is consent. In other words, we stay quiet because we're trying to keep our paymasters happy. By staying quiet, we agree with what's going on. So that process of consent, I think, is really quite... And invidious in the whole climate change story. There at least is some scientific framing for that, but let's think about this a bit further. What else have we typically seen? We see these sort of things all the time. Large reductions in emissions, 80% by 2050, by not in my term of office, by I'll hand, it, I'll hand the problem on to my children. I'll have left being the CEO of the company by then. So we all like this. It's big reductions, big great grand schemes for somewhere a long way away when we'll either be dead or retired. So you know, this is something we all like. It has no premise in science. And yet scientists have repeatedly used this language and do not criticise it. They still repeatedly use it. One of the major funding councils for universities, the Scientific Funding Council, if you like, the EPSRC, uses this to, uh, to over, uh, for overarching for its energy research. It has no premise on science, but it does fit with the policymakers' demands. The CO2 from this event is in the atmosphere for 100, 200 years, roughly. Keep these projectors on, the lights on. So, for the next, so we are changing the climate tonight. Whatever we else we may do, we are changing the climate as we sit here now using fossil fuels to, to, to do this talk. 2050 targets, therefore, are, are irrelevant. It doesn't matter about what happens in 2050. It's about what happens today, what happens tomorrow. Really, what happened in the past as well, but we can't do much about that. So it's about the build-up of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the other greenhouse gases. And that's really important. What matters are the cumulative emissions, the build-up of emissions day in, day out. That's what's important for climate change. Not some long-term mythical target that's got nothing to do with science or climate change that keeps us all happy. So we have to move back towards cumulative emissions, carbon budgets. But that rewrites the chronology, it rewrites the timeline of climate change, takes it away from wind turbines in 2030 or nuclear power, carbon capture and storage, other great schemes way off in the future. That these things are no longer, no longer adequate. What it tells you is you've got to do something immediate, immediately, urgent and radical reductions. You've got to come off the curve now. And you can't come off the curve with supply technologies, not, not quickly enough. Now, I won't be quite explicit here. I'm not saying the supply side is not important but it cannot get you off the curve anywhere near fast enough. So you'll have much higher temperatures if we just rely on people like me, engineers, to come up with technologies that will solve the problem in 2025 or 2030. Remember, it's not just coming up with the technology, it's getting that technology to penetrate the energy system. And that can take decades. So it's not just having the good idea, it's making the good idea actually work. So how does this scientifically credible way of thinking of two degrees C, this idea of carbon budgets, how does that reframe the whole debate? Well, first, let's look at the latest data. It's not quite the latest data, and we can plot this for next year. It'll be worse next year, and it'll be worse the year after. So we all know this. And actually, this curve could be for anything to do with humans, really. Anderson says scientists have been keeping quiet about the tendency, one could even say plot, to underplay everything about the looming climate catastrophe. 
The growth rate in CO2 for the last century was 2.7% per year. On average, it was 2.7%. Now, remember, that's a century when we didn't think about climate change, and the growth rate was 2.7%. From 2000 to 2007, the growth rate was 3.5%. Remember, it's a growth rate of a bigger number as well. That's why it's exponential. So despite the fact we've been rambling about climate change repeatedly, our, the rate of growth of CO2 has actually gone up, not down. And I said it was 5.9% in 2009 to 2010, dropped a little bit now. Now, what's interesting on top of that, so that, I mean, it's really just pointing completely the wrong direction, exactly opposite of the direction that we should be going in. This may not mean much to many of you, but just to, just to say that the, the, the models that we, we have a whole set of models about what might happen to the emissions in the future. And the highest set that we consider is, we, we did used to consider until quite recently, was appropriate for the future, had a growth rate out of 2020. The, the scenarios go right the way up to the 2100, but their short-term growth rate was only 2.2%. So the highest ones that we model, and we didn't ever fully model those, we used lower ones at about 1% to 1.5%, weren't even in keeping with what the emissions that we were doing at the time were pointing in the direction they were pointing in. So we have always underplayed everything we possibly can. We've done exactly what the skeptics said, but in reverse. We've underplayed at every single occasion what we can do on climate change. And I'm particularly talking here about the scientists engaging with the emission scenarios. So not the other ones that do the more detailed bits of work that are really important behind all of this. Kevin Anderson should know he's working every day with scientists from around the world who just keep quiet. Here Anderson gives us an example of the number juggling in the 2006 Stern report delivered to the British government. The earlier you can bring the emissions to a, to a head and then bring them down, the lower the reduction rate has to be after the, after the peak. By and large, there's a few caveats in that. If we peaked emissions, this is for, these are roughly a 50-50 chance of 2 degrees C, there or thereabouts. If we peaked emissions by 2015, and the Stern, has anyone, if many of you here heard of the Stern report? Quite an influential report. I don't know if you know, but the Stern report is premised on global emissions peaking in 2015. He didn't speak to Africa, India, China, anyone else like that. I'm sure he spoke to a few folk in Oxford. Yeah, and that is very typical. We take a very parochial view of the world. It used to be our world, but it's not really anymore. So 2015 peak. Now, this is our emissions here, and probably a few of you struggle to see this. These are our emissions going up here to this peak in 2015, then coming off. And then this bit here, you can never get emissions down to zero because you've got to feed the population. And feeding the population, you, as far as we can tell, you won't get the emissions down to zero because even just ploughing a field will release methane into the atmosphere. Fertiliser will put you into in the atmosphere. So there's all sorts of things to the agriculture. Even if you make it very efficient, you're still going to have to get, still get emissions. Remember, it's the area under the curve that matters. And there's a range of, range of um, plots here, a range of curves that are drawn, and that's because science, as all good sciences, is quite uncertain. In reality... Once we factor in continuing emissions coming from things like agriculture and deforestation, there is no room left for emissions from us in the developed countries. So if we take the one in the middle now, the 2021, and let's, I'm going to strip out from that, because that was emissions of all sorts. I'm going to strip out deforestation emissions, I'm going to strip out the food emissions, um, and I'm pretty, pretty much going to leave us just with what's left for energy, the area that I focus on. Already, by 2012, in fact by 2010, we'd blown the budget. If we think of what the emissions are from deforestation over the century, we think of feeding 9 billion people, 7 to 9 billion people over the century, and if you think of the emissions we put out between 2000 and 2010, we have no emissions left for energy for most of the scenarios. So we have to be on the optimistic end of the science. If you then plot that, what you'll see, the energy emissions have to go down to zero. Now that's interesting, because if the emissions go down to zero, you can't have any carbon capture and storage and all these great schemes that are out there to try and take the CO2 out of coal or gas-fired power stations. Because you cannot get them down to zero. You can't get them near to zero. Probably somewhere between a 60 and 85% capture rate. In other words, 60 to 85% of the carbon dioxide going up the flue or in the fuel in the first place, you can strip out. But you're always going to get something, a 10%, a 15% residue. 
And you also, of course, you're going to have to get a lot more mined out of the ground because it makes the process a lot more inefficient. And as you mine coal or as you get gas, you will always get releases of hydrocarbon gases in the atmosphere, and you cannot stop that process. So you can't use carbon capture and storage. So that all, you, all you can fit in this are, been thinking about it, are biofuels, which have a lot of problems with them, your renewables, and nuclear. And they're all very low carbon, very low to zero carbon, as near as damn it. So it says a lot about what you have to do. By 2035 to 2040, around the globe, your cars, your planes, your fridges, everything, no carbon. Remember, this is a global plot, not for, the, not for the wealthy parts of the world. So I now want to think about that. What does this mean for the wealthy parts of the world, the OECD countries, the Annex 1 countries? Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 8377 and become an organisational subscriber. Show your love, 3CR. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Professor Kevin Anderson is the speaker and the commentary is by Alex Smith, who hosts a radio show called EcoShock from Vancouver in Canada. Speaking to the Cabot Institute in Bristol in early November, Anderson told the sold-out crowd, scientists and bureaucrats cannot bring themselves to tell the public the awful truth about climate change. Anderson also leaves aside the whole issue of natural climate feedbacks that could dramatically add more carbon dioxide and methane to our atmosphere. He's a specialist in energy, even working in that field for companies like Shell Oil in the past. In this speech, Dr. Anderson takes us on a straight path through the impacts of our fossil fuel extraction and burning and just that alone. He acknowledges there may be much more, but he says science knows too little about them at this time. We can think, for example, about recent science finding methane coming from the Siberian seabed and from the warming waters along the east coast of North America. Other studies in speeches already broadcast on Radio EcoShock show that melting permafrost in the Arctic and subarctic could add far more greenhouse gases than all our fossil fuel burning. Rob Hopkins, founder of the Transition Town Movement in the UK, did a written interview with Kevin Anderson in his blog Transition Culture, it was published on November 2, 2012. In the comments, we find this compact addition to the warming forces Kevin Anderson did not cover, and it's written by the Wales farmer Lewis Cleverton. Kevin Anderson said, Rapid and deep emissions reductions may not be easy, but 4 degrees centigrade to 6 degrees centigrade will be much worse. In the comments at transitionculture.org, Lewis Cleverton writes, I'm sorry to say this presents a false dichotomy, and doubly sorry to hear it from one of Anderson's standing. Taking a credible best case for emissions reduction of getting to near zero output by 2050, regardless of whether that is by personal virtue demonstrations suddenly sweeping the whole world, or by determined popular global efforts at steering the politics to achieve an equitable and efficient global climate treaty, 
or by the latter adamantly supported by the former, we are going to emit enough greenhouse gases by 2050 for at least 0.6 degrees centigrade of further warming. Adding to this 0.7 degree of warming now time-lagged in the pipeline of ocean thermal inertia, plus 0.8 degrees of warming already realized would give us 2.1 degrees centigrade of warming as a total, but for one critical factor. Ending our fossil fuel emissions means ending those of fossil sulfate, which maintain the sulfate parasol that veils the planet. As Hansen and Sato reported, the loss of the sulfate parasol will mean a rise of warming by 110%, within a margin of 30%, raising the projected 2.1 degrees centigrade to a total of 4.4 centigrade. That would be realized by about 2080 due to the time lag of around 30 years after 2050. Our best case for emissions control would thus give us between 3.8 degrees centigrade and 5 degrees centigrade of warming. However, there is a further critical factor, Lewis Cleverton writes, namely that of the interactive mega-feedbacks of which at least six are already accelerating and several have the potential to dwarf anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. The most advanced of these, cryosphere decline, the loss of snow and ice cover, causing an albedo loss, the reflection of the sun, is reportedly already causing warming equivalent to around 30% of our CO2 emissions. This feedback alone is nearing the capacity to offset the 43% average annual intake of our CO2 output by the natural carbon sinks, and there he's talking about the ocean. Lewis Cleverton continues, In the next 68 years between now and 2080, under our best-case emissions control, those feedbacks would have continuously intensifying warming to drive their interactions and outputs far beyond any possibility of our control. Under this scenario, we should certainly have substantially more than 5 degrees of warming in 2080, and warming would then continue at a pace dictated by the interactive feedbacks. Arguments over emissions control via personal virtue or via collective political action for the Global Climate Treaty, are thus missing the point. Even the best case of emissions control is patently not remotely commensurate with our predicament. Lewis Cleverton goes on to say only geoengineering to increase our albedo effect, namely by spraying sulfur particles into the air to brighten clouds and thus turn away some solar energy, only that could possibly save us. That is the least toxic and most easily reversed proposal for geoengineering, But it's a topic for another day. The main point here is this. Kevin Anderson's speech sticks to the simple math of our fossil fuel trajectory. That alone promises to take us to at least four degrees hotter and possibly much more if we don't act immediately. The mega-feedbacks and the warming hidden by pollution loom as even greater shadows over this already dark picture. Radio EcoShock gets tremendous help from listeners. Tips become programs. My thanks to Chris at Sheffield Indy Media for alerting me to Kevin Anderson's appearance in Bristol. Write me anytime at ecoshock.org. We have volunteer webmaster Carl Hartung, who saved the site in 2011 when we got kicked out for too many downloads. We have graphic artist Chris Canale helping the blog at ecoshock.info. 
Radio EcoShock still needs a social media genie to talk and tweet up the show. Let me know if that's you. For the first time in seven years, I have to ask for your help. I've always paid the whole cost of Radio EcoShock out of my pocket. Now my income has gone down while production and distribution costs are going up. You can help this radio program keep going by clicking on the Donate button on our website at ecoshock.org or on the blog at ecoshock.info. My thanks to the listeners who have made that donation this past week. Radio EcoShock is the second biggest environment show anywhere. We run the world's largest free green audio download site. Become part of the program, won't you? A best of Radio EcoShock replay. In his November 6th speech in Bristol, United Kingdom, Anderson warns again and again, we allow ourselves to be fooled year after year. There's nothing left for a 40, this is a 40% chance of exceeding 2 degrees C. There's nothing left for us. If we asked the poor parts of the world to really pull out all stops, we would have to stop putting any missions out in at least 2010 to give us an outside chance of avoiding what we've defined internationally as dangerous climate change that we've all signed up to, that we pass international negotiations on, that we pass our own domestic legislation on. We never even bother thinking about any of this. And the scientists stay quiet. That's a peak in 2010 coming down. I mean, I like engineering. I think you do a lot. As an engineer, given a good spec, you can, you can produce a lot, but you can't have an infinite rate of reduction. And in this case, it'd be even more than that because you've got to do it in the past. So <laughs> They almost succeeded that recently with that neutrino experiment, but I gather it didn't work. So how come this, I would argue this is, this, this is completely premised on Hadley Centre type analysis. All, all the standard science feeds into this. We're not using any tipping point issues, no discontinuities. It's all the standard analysis that feeds into all, everyone else's sets of emission scenarios. So why is it, is it we've come to such fundamentally different conclusions? Um, I'm going to think about this graphically. And it's actually quite important, this, I think, to get a handle on, on how much we've deliberately twisted the debate. Um, what emissions are there for 2 degrees C? You know, what budgets are we going to use for 2 degrees C? Because there's a lot of our scientific uncertainty there. So let's just quickly look at those. Remember, what I'm trying to say here is the scientific community repeatedly underplays the story. That's what I'm trying to show here. It's very unpopular with some of my colleagues. The Stern Report, for those of you who are familiar with, looking at current rates. Now, the Stern Report was published in 2006. So he had the data up to 2006, including his researchers, and it wasn't, wasn't without a few pounds in writing the report. And I have a lot of time for the report, except for the numbers. But, um, I like the, the ethos around discounts, I think, was really important. Um, and he got mostly criticised for that by the economists. But in terms of these numbers, he had the growth rate of CO2e at 0.95% per annum from 2000 to 2006. Now, think about that. That's, that's that angle of the curve going up. But the real data was 2.4% per annum. That's a massive difference. Now, that's not a difference in the prediction. That data was available and was collected by governments and submitted to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and SIDIAC and all the other great people who collect this data. Anyone could have got the data off the web for nothing. But instead, we use the 0.95% per annum. And actually, loads of climate models, just emission models, have just done this. They continually use an extrapolation of 1990 optimistic trends. They don't bother checking the real data. And the scientists say nothing. So an error of 250%. Um, and that would fundamentally change the subsequent analysis in the Stern report. And what's the, what does the scientific community say? Absolutely nothing. Just stay quiet. The American scientists are playing the same incredible game, pretending world emissions peaked sometime in the past.
the United States Climate Change Science Program 2007. That's when it came out. So that's these are where it came out, and they're assuming a 2010 peak. Ackerman report came out in 2009, had global emissions peak in 2010. We contacted them about this. We didn't get a particularly satisfactory email. The Hume report came out in 2010, had emissions peak in 2010. But you know that's challenging. Peaking in the past, you know, and I say the neutrino didn't work. Peaking in the past. Hansen, 2008 report, had emissions peak in 2005 in that report. Nordhaus, and these are sort of two ends of the spectrum on climate change, in a 2010 report had emissions peak in 2005. Now, if they were abstract analysis, fine, but what they then do is they then give policy recommendations on the back of those. Look at those reports, you'll see policy recommendations. So a policy recommendation premised on owning a TARDIS, and then this is, this is what we then develop our, our policies from. This happens repeatedly, what do the scientists say? Nothing. So that's the peaks. What about the reduction rates? Well, these are, we come back to our old friends, the astrologists. Um, these are held in trek by what economists tell us can be matched with economic growth. I mean, given the economists haven't really been very good at un under understanding the sort of economic chaos that we're seeing at the moment, um, I think it's odd that we actually take too much notice of what they say about the future. But here, there was almost every single curve out there, that reduction rate is constrained at 2 to 4% per annum. And that's because anything outside of that, the economists tell us, cannot be compatible with economic growth. So it doesn't matter if we wipe the planet out, if we all die, as long as we're not interfering with economic growth. So this bit here completely constrains the rest of the analysis. It's, so this is why you have to massage this bit, and why you have to muck around down here, because the economists have told you that, and we daren't question them. The Osbournes of this world, the Vince Cables of this world, with their wonderful intellect. We have to take every note of what they have to say. Every big report assumes we will rescue ourselves by sucking CO2 out of the air by some magic as yet undiscovered technology assembled almost instantly on a massive scale. It's geoengineering. It's the technical fix. But the bit that we do manipulate is that most analysis out there now, low-carbon analysis, assumes we can suck the CO2 out of the air. So they almost all have geoengineering in there, negative emissions technologies. And almost without exception, what they mean is actually grow biomass, combust it in a power station, and then put the gas back underground, the carbon dioxide underground. They pretty much all have that in there. So they're sucking the CO2 out of the air, or large numbers of them. And that's in, used in re report after report. Um, they use the negative emissions in there. So ubiquitous in low-carbon scenarios um, that we use geoengineering. We've never succeeded in geoengineering at any scale. So we're putting something in place that we assume will work, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Then the other thing is, what size of the budget do we use? Well, the Hadley Centre, the UK's premier modelling centre in this area, um, and one of, the, one of the leading model, model groups in the world, for, for um, around about a two degrees C future, they gave to the IPCC, they gave a figure of uh, 1,400 billion tonnes of carbon that we could dump in the atmosphere over the century. And the, the Committee on Climate Change and the government's choice is to go for 2,900 gigatons. Just look at the difference. One's almost twice as high as the other. So we're also changing what area under the curve we can use by changing those probabilities. So little tweaks here and there allow you to all sorts of ways to massage what you're doing. Now, the other bit I want to split about, talk about briefly, and I think this is really quite worrying, this is the split between the poor parts and the wealthy parts of the world. So if you imagine that you know, the, the wealthy parts of the world are doing this, and the poor parts of the world, their emissions have been doing this. And the point is, when do they cross? When they cross is a really important point. The United States Climate Change Science Program, this is the language it used, used meaning, this is a really important document in the States, we have some, something similar in the UK, used meaningful and plausible, that's their quote, reference scenarios from a prospectus of highly regarded integrated assessment models. It's basically when scientists come together with economists and produce something that's expensive. I, I am, at the moment, very unconvinced that they have any, I think they're actually more dangerous than, than they are, than, than any good they provide. 
the geoengineering issue is really important. Now, not to say that we can't do it, but we haven't done it. We have very few pilots that are even moving anywhere near this direction at the moment. And the one that pretty much everyone uses is biomass and carbon capture and storage. You grow the plants, you burn it in the power station, and then you take the, the flue gases out and you put them deep in some reservoir somewhere, an old gas reservoir or an oil reservoir. It's worth noting there's not one large-scale carbon capture and storage power station in the world. There's some moderate-sized ones, well, hardly moderate, some small plants around the world now. There's nothing large anywhere on the planet at the moment. There are big issues about food and biodiversity with biomass. So we're going to be growing this biomass. If you look at shipping, it thinks it's going to use biomass. The car industry thinks it's going to use biomass. The aviation industry thinks it's going to use biomass. The power sector thinks it's going to use biomass. And we're going to use biomass here as well, for underground. Everyone's thinking they're using it. Every biomass scenario out there has a lot of cold CCS. Is there enough space out there to put all this carbon dioxide is a reasonable question to ask. Let's tune into a longer passage from Dr. Kevin Anderson as he spoke at the Cabot Institute at the University of Bristol on November 6th. This was recorded from the webcast by myself, Alex Smith, of Radio EcoShock. You can download the whole speech from our show blog at ecoshock.info or from our website at ecoshock.org. These are hardwired to the assumptions. What we're doing is we're pretending we're exploring the future and we're just hardwiring them depending on what our paymasters tell us broadly. And I think that is not the way that science should be done. And, I, and let me be quite specific about that. I'm talking about the people doing the emissions modelling here, not about many, most of the scientists who work on climate change, but that particular group, the group that I engage with, and I'm one of. So with few exceptions, uh, the scenarios out there, they, they, they hide or they massage historical emissions. So they change the framing of where we are today. That happens repeatedly. They always underestimate short-term growth out to the peak in emissions. That happens, again, pretty much with every scenario out there. The peak choice is Machiavellian at best. No one thinks we're going to peak in 2016, and yet actually every model will peak in 2016, because that gives you a nice answer for your, for your policymaker. The reduction rates are dictated by the astrologists, so you're just told what you've got to come off the curve at. Geoengineering is assumed to work. I'm not saying it won't work, but we should have scenarios that some include it, that some don't, and probably only very few of them should include it. The split between the poor and the wealthy parts, Anak 1 and non Anak 1, is pretty much either neglected or hidden. Great big assumptions about big technologies. And as someone who used to work offshore, I like big technologies, but they're not quick to roll out, and they're not like they are in the textbooks. So you don't get the efficiencies they give you in the textbooks. You know, the real world of big technology is very different from the, from the textbook world. And actually, the economists have nothing to add to this, not the neoclassicals, because this is a non-marginal world. This is a world where we are changing things so rapidly at such fast, such fast rates. The theories that most neoclassical economists do, market economists use, are based on marginal analysis. So it would be like using Newton to understand, understand subatomic particles. You would not apply the theories of neoclassical marginal analysis, market analysis, to understand step change issues that we're talking about here. You wouldn't apply Newton to understand subatomic particles. And yet we continue to do that. There's a real arrogance in that. And we also still think, we have a magician's view, I'd say, of time here. We think the bull can meander into the, into the china shop, trash everything around it, come out, and we're one doing with some superglue, and it look just like it did before. That's what we think about the planet, that we somehow can do all this, reverse ourselves out of it, and then fix it. Which is quite an arrogant position to take, and doesn't fit with any of the science that we know around these issues. So why is all this the case? Why, why have we got this political creed around 2 degrees C? These are some quotes. I'm putting these into paper, um, and I inform the people that I've used these quotes. Um, I'm not sure who they're from. This is a very senior colleague of mine. I have a lot of time for him. Very senior political scientist. Advises the government a lot of the time. I spoke to him in 2010 after an event all about 2 degrees C stuff, 
And he said, um, too much has been invested in two degrees C for us to say it is not possible. It would undermine all that's been achieved. It gives a sense of hopelessness that we may as well just give in. These are the exact words. This is my asking the question then. Are you suggesting we have to lie about our research findings? Well, perhaps just be not so honest, more dishonest. <laughs> so that's, that's from a, a political scientist who really understands this, this terrain of climate change policy and, and science. This is a senior government advisor who won't say who it is. We can't tell them, ministers and politicians, it's impossible. We can say it's a stretch and ambitious, but that with political will, two degrees C is still feasible. Even when they're probably at three and four degrees C and swimming around in sea level rise, we can still tell the ministers two degrees C is possible. So, I mean, he actually said that in a public public, um, place, so I won't, I I could name him, but I won't. Right, that's the um, Department of Energy and Climate Change. That's Ed Miliband. The day before he went to Copenhagen, um, I had a 20-minute meeting with him in Manchester before he got the ferry the following day. Um, and he said, our, this is, this, so this was the, the Secretary of State for the Department for Energy and Climate Change. Our position is challenging enough. I can't go with the message that two degrees C is impossible. It's what we've all worked towards. So across the board, everyone's saying, we can't be honest about two degrees C. I was at an event recently, a Chatham House event, so I can't tell you who was there, but a very senior government scientist, and someone very senior from a, from a company, an oil company, um, that looks like something you might find at the beach. These very senior people said, well, I think we're on for 46 degrees C, but we just can't be open about it. That that is going on all the time behind the scenes, that somehow we can't tell the public. Exactly the opposite, say, of what the, well, it's what the skeptics say, but exactly the opposite direction. So where does all of this leave us? If it all looks too difficult, then what about a 4 degrees C future? And there are some of you here that will learn a lot more about this than me, but just, I'm using some numbers here based on Hadley Center and some other people's analysis. It's very simple, some set of assumptions here, but I think it's important to think about a 4 degrees C future. If we peak by 2020, we come down off the curve at 3.5% per annum, the sort of stuff we've been talking about, we can hold the 4 degrees C. 4 degrees C is doable. It's challenging, but doable. So I'd say it's achievable. So it's aiming for 4 degrees C more realistic. And certainly, I was at an event the other day, and someone said, I can't see what's wrong with 4.6. Why don't we just carry on aiming for that sort of temperature? He was a very wealthy American. But, you know, I'm sure there's lots of other people who say the same thing. They somehow, a lot of us think we can defend ourselves against this sort of changed world. Maybe some of us can. Four degrees C, global mean surface temperature. You're probably talking about five to six as your land temperature. Because remember, this, a lot of the global temperature is, is, is held down by the thermal inertia of the oceans. So the oceans themselves actually keep, keep the Earth cooler. So if the global average is four, then the land temperature on average will be higher than that. But you see very large regional variations, and that's what really matters, are these regional variations. And let's be blunt about that again. The science is really very, very uncertain on this. This is a, an area that really needs a lot more work. So if we think of the stuff that, this is stuff that came out of Hadley Centre, look at the hottest days of the year. So think of the uh, 2003 heat wave in, in, 2003 heat wave in Europe. Just think of China and Beijing and Shanghai. If you look at the buildings that are going up there and other parts of the world as well, during their hottest days of the year, you'd have a 6 to 8 degrees C temperature rise. And that could last, remember, for quite a long time. So the hottest days of the year with a 4 degrees C global average. Imagine the 2003 heat wave. Imagine that, that we, we knocked on top of that, 8 to 10 degrees C. Now, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 people died during that. We've got Victorian infrastructures. Our tubes won't work. You know, there's lots of the things will not work in that sort of world. Then that we're not being designed or for that sort of future. Certainly not with the populations that we have and the urban heat island effect on top of it. 10 to 12, 12 degrees in New York. I mean, these are high, really very high temperatures that you just simply, our infrastructures and the way that we live our lives could not deal with these things. And you remember in London, you what, is, it three, is it three days food? Well, this could be a good thing. There's three days food in London. But those sorts of temperatures, you may find there's no transport network. So in three days, you know, things won't be working. And your fridges probably won't work because your air conditioning units will be blasting away, so you'll probably be blowing the fuses on the grid. So, yeah, this is not a world that we know how to contemplate. And at 4 degrees C, 
If you think of in lower latitudes, the estimates are that you see significant reductions, 30-40% reductions in some of the staple crops, maize and rice and so forth. Um, at the same time, the population is heading towards 9 billion. So this is the sort of 4 degree C world. And my, so I mentioned there, you know, some people I do know here will know a lot more about this than me, and if they take this similar view, this is my anecdotal polling of, of climate scientists who work in this sort of area. I said there's a widespread view that a 4 degree C future is incompatible with the organized global community as we see it today, particularly going forward with 9 billion people and all the other stresses that we face. It's likely beyond adaptation. There's lots of this. We will not be able to be, be able to adapt to the impacts. We'll just get hit by the impacts. Some of us might be able to adapt, but many people won't. And it's devastating for the majority of ecosystems. Ecosystems always change, but this is a very, very fast rate of change. And the ecosystems probably are not tuned to changing at this sort of rate of change. And also, there's a high, quite a high probability of this not being stable. Many scientists would suggest as you head towards these temperatures, you get other feedbacks kicking in. Some people call them tipping points, non-linearities. I think we mustn't overplay the, what we know about those. We don't know when they're going to occur. What we do know is the higher the temperature, the more likely it is that they'll occur. So a, a prudent person would perhaps keep the temperature rise low. And then it would go up to some other temperature, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, wherever it might stabilise out there. But again, these are things I think there's still a lot of science to do. So I would say, I go as far as say 4 degrees C, we should avoid at all costs. Don't despair, Anderson tells us. We are the very people who can do something to save the climate right now. Now, before we despair, um, this is all a sort of message of doom and gloom. What can we do about it? What can we in this room, what can other people, policymakers, what can we do from the bottom up, what can we do from the top down about this? Anyone, is anyone still awake? There's, some, there's a little bit of good news coming up. I'll, be, I'll try and whip through this a bit quicker. Just to give you a handle, this is the sort of reductions that we need to see in the wealthy parts of the world. This is for an outside chance of 2 degrees C. We need to have about, 40, about 10% per annum, if not a bit more than that, really, from energy. So we need about 40% reduction in the next three years in our energy consumption. That's all of our energy consumption, not just the bits you want to measure. That includes planes, that includes ships. 40%. A 70% reduction by 2020, and basically be completely decarbonized by 2030. Fridges, planes, ships, cars, everything we do. Projectors, power system, everything. Decarbonized. To give a little bit of space for the poorer parts of the world to help them develop and improve their welfare. So that's what we'd have to try and do, and that will all say that that's impossible. But the question I was asked, which you probably can't see at the back, is then, is living with 4 degrees C temperature rise by 2050 to 2070, is that less than impossible? The future is impossible, which is an academic I quite like, because it means you would think lots of you see lots of research grants saying, well, how can we make the impossible possible? We don't get that. We just say, well, yeah, how, how can we incrementally twiddle with this system again? But, you know, so the, whatever you do, the mitigation future is impossible, and the adaptation future is impossible. And that we've got ourselves in that position, tough. Yeah. We have, we've done nothing about climate change since Rio, and we've knowingly done that. So are there any things that can move us in the right direction? The first one of these, I'm going to talk about is agency, and the second one is about, sorry, equity, and the second one is technology. I'll, I'll whip through these quite quickly. This is just a guideline, but there's 7 billion people on the planet. Who needs to make a change? It's not about population. Climate change is not about population. Climate change is about a small group of people, and we know who they are. We see them when, they, when we shave, when we put our makeup on, we see them in the mirror. So sustainability is a, is a 7 billion person issue. Climate change is not because it's about the next 10, 5, well, it's the next day to 10 years, really. Pareto, Vilfo Pareto, Vilfredo Pareto is an Italian economist. Um, 80-20 rule, I use this in engineering for years, it's just called the rule of thumb. 80% of something relates to 20% of those involved. This is just a guide, and there's some background to this information now. 80% of emissions from 20% of the population. Run that three times. In other words, do the same thing again with that particular group there. Do the 80-20 rule again in that, and do it again and you get about 50% of the world's emissions come from 1% of the population. Now, some of the other estimates out there, this is for energy. Uh, if you include food, it might be about 5% of the emissions come from 50% of the population. But actually, food is more evenly spread. 
because we all eat roughly the same. The peasant and the, the pauper and the, the prince uh, eat roughly the same in terms of food, but they don't have the same in terms of energy. So roughly as a guy, 40% to 60% of the emissions come from 1% to 5% of the population. And we know who they are. Who's in the 1% to 5%? Well, I don't know if you're all in there, but the sort of audiences I normally engage with, every climate scientist is in there, with a, you know, might be an exception somewhere, but hard to find. Every journalist and pontificator and skeptic, and every other OECD academic, anyone who gets on a plane once a year, and if you have to 30k a year, which most students are, and probably some of you will probably earn that much money, then you're probably in that category already. So we're the major emitters. We know who they are. There's no one else to blame. Um, and that includes me. So the question then is, are people like us, the Annex 1 people, but including, of course, about 300 million people who live wealthily, wealthy lives in China, 300 million, roughly the same population as the slightly smaller EU was, um, are we prepared to make changes to our lives now or have them enforced upon us? Or do we, are we prepared to hand over to our children, or even our, later on in our lives, a much, much higher climate change future? So there's a, there's a lot that we can do. We don't require the whole world to do something. We require a small proportion of the world to change what they do today for the next 10 or 20 years while we put low-carbon supply in place. Then we can go back to our old profligate lifestyles, except for there's some sustainability concerns that might step in. But from a time perspective, climate change is a short-term issue that we have to deal with, and that's why it's not about population. Here's how Kevin Anderson, as much a human as a scientist, ends this talk at the University of Bristol. This is actually what got through in the, in the paper, the World Science paper. This is not meant as a message of futility, as it often said, it was just futile. It's a wake-up call of where our rose-tinted spectacles have brought us. Real hope, and that's the only thing I'm interested in, real hope if it is to arise at all, real action at all, will do so from a bare assessment of the scale of the challenge that we now face. And that's what I've tried to show here. This is where we are today. If we know where we are today, we know what the scale of the problem is. If as scientists we keep underplaying it, we don't know it. And I'll leave you with a quote from Robert Unger that I always finish off with. At every level, of, uh, level, the greatest obstacle to transforming the world is we lack the clarity and imagination to conceive that it could be different. Clarity and imagination, that's what we need. Lots more of that. And then I think we could actually deal with climate change to a degree. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Thanks to Professor Kevin Anderson, who spoke to us from Bristol, and Alex Smith, who interpreted his speech uh, to explain a bit some of the difficult scientific details. He's the host from Radio EcoShock in Vancouver. And thank you to him to let us uh, rebroadcast his show. Uh, you can hear Alex Smith's EcoShock radio on 3CR every Sunday at 6am and it's also online thanks to the team tonight Jane, Teddy, Glenn Roger and Miwa for me being informed isn't enough, climate action at the moment is either ramping up against coal or embracing renewable energy we hope that you will take some action linking up with uh, Beyond Zero Emissions 350.org Friends of the Earth or any of the groups that are pushing the agenda of keeping our climate safe. Thank you for listening. Next is Save Albert Park.